The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Section 18 of Lives of Greek Statesmen by George William Cox. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Themistocles, Part 2. That Themistocles made use of these oracles to further his own plans, nay, that he had much to do even with the form in which they were set forth, it is scarcely possible to doubt. His own mind was unalterably made up. He was well aware of the influences under which the Pythian priestess was in the habit of speaking, and he was the last man to hesitate in employing such influences in a crisis like the present. The general situation was, of course, as well known at Delphi as elsewhere, and the same precautions would be taken now as at other times to guard the credit of the Delphian god whatever might be the issue. Nor would Themistocles have any objection to harsh and discouraging answers, so long as a single ray of light pointed in the direction in which he wished to guide his countrymen. Accordingly, of the two responses given to the Athenian messengers, the first was black and pitiless enough. The counsel of the god was that they should leave their homes and flee away fire and war, hastening thither in a Syrian chariot, would soon lay their city low and wrap its temples in flames. Down the walls of their shrines the big drops were even now streaming as they trembled for fear, and the black blood was pouring from their roofs for the sorrow that was coming. The answer wound up with the charge, Go ye from my holy place and brace up your hearts for the evil. This last phrase was ambiguous, and designedly so, but it was probably meant to be understood in the sense which the words seem most naturally to bear. The messengers were dismayed, but they were not to be allowed to leave Delphi without something more than words of such terrific import. A Delphian named Timon advised them to take olive branches and try the oracle once more, and for this encouragement Timon had in all likelihood already received his recompense from Themistocles. The second answer was couched in the following form. Pallas cannot prevail with Zeus, who lives on Olympus, though she has besought him with many prayers. And his word, which I now tell you, is firmly fixed as a rock. For thus saith Zeus, that when all else within the land of sea crops is wasted, the wooden wall alone shall not be taken, and this shall help you and your children. But wait not until the horsemen come and the footmen. Turn your backs upon them now, and one day you shall meet them. And thou, divine Solomus, shall destroy those that are born of women when the seed time comes or the harvest. This response, as being more hopeful, the messengers, it is said, wrote down, and if we take this statement strictly, 
it would imply that the previous answer was not written down, and therefore probably that it was of later fabrication. However this may be, we are assured that the second answer was read unchanged in the ears of the Athenian people. It was just what Themistocles wanted. It might be possible to put on it an interpretation different to his own, but that interpretation would find favor only with a minority of the most timorous and feeble-minded. The very ease with which the words might be made to coincide with his own policy seems to leave a little doubt or none as to the influence which produced it. We have then no reason whatever for questioning the narrative which tells us that when the answer was read to the Athenians, Themistocles at once came forward. Athenians, he said, the soothsayers who bid you leave your country and to seek another elsewhere are wrong, and so are the old men who tell you to stay at home and guard the Acropolis, as though the god pointed to it when he speaks of the wooden wall, because long ago there was a thorn hedge around it. This will not help you, and they are all leading you astray when they say that you must be beaten in a sea fight at Salamis, and that this is the meaning of the words, which speak of Salamis as destroying the children of women. The words do not mean this. If they had been spoken of us, the priestess would certainly have said, Salamis the wretched, not Salamis the divine, if the people of the land were doomed to die there. They are spoken not of us, but of our enemies. Arm then for the fight at sea, for the fleet is your wooden wall. With these words he gained his point, and he gained it by the same means which enabled Cleisthenes to bring about the expulsion of the Pisistratidae. Themistocles would be no more troubled by scruples than Cleisthenes, and would therefore be at least as ready to avail himself of so convenient an instrument. Whether oracles, portents, and prodigies had any real power over his commanding mind, we have no means of determining. But of such power there is little sign or none. His career, as related by Herodotus, is in the closest agreement with the judgment passed on him by Thucydides, and as described even by the earlier historian. Every feature in his character points to the mental condition of a much later and less credulous age. The answers from Delphi serve in his case only to illustrate the mode in which he guided the religious prejudices or convictions of his countrymen. He will not allow them to swerve from the path in which alone he sees hope and safety, but he is compelled to obtain a sanction from the ambiguous phraseology of a Delphian priestess, prompted, it would seem, by himself. The results which he achieved are sufficient proof that apart from such encouragements, he employed arguments more akin to those of Pericles, forty or fifty years later, in that he must have impressed on his countrymen the abiding vitality of Athens so long as she continued in her own proper path. The mental and religious condition of his time threw these arguments into the background, but beyond doubt he realized the future success of Athens against Persia as clearly as Pericles saw that Athens must come out triumphant in the struggle with Sparta and the Dorian Greeks, if only she would follow his counsels. A story is told 
that it was for a time doubtful whether the Athenians would take as their chief leader Themistocles or an obscure competitor whom Themistocles bribed to withdraw his claim. We cannot easily bring ourselves to believe that the Athenians would thus imperil the safety of their city and of all Hellas by entrusting the supreme command to a man of whom we have heard nothing before and never hear anything again and we shall see in the case of Themistocles himself how little trust is sometimes to be placed in these stories of bribery and corruption. The Athenians could scarcely be blind to the folly, or rather the madness, of making a wrong choice in such a crisis. The black cloud of invasion was drawing nearer and nearer, and the dangers nearer home were becoming more and more threatening. By placing themselves under the guidance of Themistocles, the Athenians ensured their own supremacy in Hellas, but for the present their title was not only not recognized in many quarters, it was openly repudiated. The city, which was ready to furnish a fleet of two hundred ships or more, might fairly look to exercise command at sea, but in the Congress at the Corinthian Isthmus the Allies declared bluntly that if they could not be under Spartan rule, they would dissolve the confederacy and the threat implied in this declaration could not fail to be understood by all who heard it with genuine patriotism the athenians withdrew a claim on which they might with good reason have insisted they were ready to see their city burnt their lands ravaged and to be themselves driven with their families into exile rather than suffer the ill-cemented fabric of Hellenic society to fall utterly to pieces. In other quarters they had but little to hope for, and very much to fear. Even in Sparta they could look for no enthusiasm, and from the cities to the north of Attica they had the gravest cause for apprehension. It was but too likely that here the invaders would meet with little resistance or none, even if they were not welcomed with open arms. From days now ancient, Phoenician influence had made itself felt in the Boeotian land, and we are perhaps unable to determine how largely a Phoenician element may have affected the blood of the population. The extraction of history from mythical traditions is generally a dangerous process, but tales which speak of the importation of Phoenician letters and writing by Cadmos, the founder of Thebes, cannot be misunderstood. The very name of this city carries us away to the eastern world. The legends of Dionysius and Pentheus point to a fierce struggle between the old religion and the orgiastic rites of Syrian worship. And Phoenician names in Boeotian mythology which have assumed a wonderfully Hellenic look, have undergone in reality but a slight disguise. Cadmus is no more than the Semitic Kadem, the East, carried to Erev, Oirope, the West. Their son is Melikertes, the Phoenician Melkarth, who is known also as Palaimon, a name which again is as nearly as possible a translation of Balhamon. It is clear, therefore, that the waves of Phoenician enterprise broke mainly on the Boeotian coast, and it was in the Boeotian land that Xerxes was received not merely with indifference, but with a vehement enthusiasm. The Argives of the Peloponnese declared their intention of remaining neutral, 
because as descended from perseus the father of perses the progenitor of the persians they did not care to interfere in a strife in which their kinsmen on either side were antagonists but in thebes and elsewhere medism as it was called assumed another and more virulent form and this vehement desire for persian rule marked for the most part the noble families in whose hands the main body of the people became merely passive instruments the very depth of the anti-hellenic feeling manifested by these eupatrid chiefs may probably be taken as evidence that they were not altogether hellenic in blood themselves the chief danger therefore was that persian invasion might thrust itself in like a wedge between the lands to the south and the north of the boeotian border and so cripple and paralyze them both the Aloyad chiefs of thessaly were like the theban nobles vehement partisans of xerxes but that their treason found no favour in the eyes of the thessalians generally is proved by the earnest entreaties addressed by the latter to the athenians that a vigorous stand should be made against the barbarian in the dangerous defiles through which the peneas works its way into the sea such an effort they would support with their utmost strength but they confessed plainly that their geographical position rendered it impossible for them to hold their ground without large help from their hellenic kinsfolk such aid failing them they must secure their safety by making a covenant with the persian king and this covenant would in all likelihood compel them to take an active part against those whom they would infinitely prefer to help the thessalian pass of tempe along which a road stretches to the extent of five miles is nowhere more than twenty and in some parts not more than thirteen feet in width no post therefore it might well have been thought could be more easily maintained a spartan and athenian force of ten thousand hoplites or heavily armed soldiers was dispatched at once to occupy the defile the athenian troops being commanded by themistocles but themistocles with his spartan colleague held it for only a few days and in the popular traditions many causes were assigned for its abandonment the more simple tale framed in sheer terror of persian power ascribed it to a warning of the macedonian chief alexandros who assured them that if they remained where they were they would be trampled under the feet of the invading hosts the other version traced it to the more reasonable fear that the barbarians instead of undertaking the impossible task of forcing their way through a defile which a handful of men could hold against myriads would take as in fact they did take the western road through the perhybian territory to the city of ganas if this be so the athenians and spartans feared not that they might be trodden down by advancing hordes in tempe but that they might be taken in the rear when the army of xerxes had worked its way to the south over the more westerly slopes of olympus the thessalians thus deserted passed absolutely under the power of the Aloyad chieftains and irritated probably at the treatment which they had received threw themselves heartily into the persian cause thus before xerxes had begun his westward march from thermae 
his messengers returned with the tidings that he was already virtually lord of all the greek cities to the north of the borders of attica the whole of thessaly was lost by the abandonment of tempe and the failure to guard the peribian road to ganos but although themistocles was not likely to underrate the extent of this loss he was probably not greatly discouraged by it he felt that the phoenician fleet was the backbone of the persian power and that nothing but a decisive encounter at sea could possibly break it if their navy could be shattered or destroyed the land forces would be left comparatively helpless still the invader must be resisted both by land and by sea and the medizing greeks must be warned of the risks which they were running by joining the enemies of their country we are told therefore that at a congress now gathered at the isthmus the representatives of the allies acting by the advice of themistocles pledged themselves in the event of their success in the war to tithe to the delphian god the property or even the persons of those who joined the medes but we have to remember that the confederates either now or later on are said to have sworn that they would leave in ruins as a memorial for all coming ages the temples profaned and destroyed by the persians and as the genuineness of this oath was in later times called into question the story of the threatening tithing may be also not beyond suspicion but it is certain that after the abandonment of tempe the confederates resolved that a stand should be made in the defile of thermopylae while their fleet should take up its position on the northernmost Euboean coast, which, from a temple of Artemis built on it, was known as the Artemision. The supreme command of the naval forces thus assembled was entrusted to the Spartan Eurybiades. The allies, now as before, made this an indispensable condition, which the Athenians, to their lasting credit, cheerfully accepted. The fleet reached Artemision with crews fully prepared for fighting though perhaps not keenly eager for the conflict two days later the persian ships hove into sight but according to the old tale the divine jealousy had already been at work to render the conditions of the struggle somewhat more equal a fearful storm stirred up by the god boreas who had married the daughter of the athenian dragon king erechtheus had dashed four hundred of their vessels on the iron-bound coast of magnesia and strewed the shore with rich spoils of gold and silver and the costliest treasures of eastern art and luxury on land the persian king had been victorious at thermopylae over leonidas and his spartans but the terrible cost of success wakened in him it is said grave misgivings of the final issue the hopes of his admirals were higher than his own these we are told were resolved that not a single greek vessel should escape and so while the main body of their fleet remained facing the greek ships off artemision a detachment of two hundred persian vessels was sent round the eastern coast of euboea to double the southern promontory of garaistas and to take the greek fleet in the rear at Euripus we have now to deal with a difficult and suspicious narrative which it would not be necessary to examine had it not 
a direct bearing on the conduct of Themistocles. That he was carrying out his plans to the best of his power we may be sure, but it is not less certain that he was hampered and thwarted at almost every step. The Persian squadron was sent round Geraistas on the very day on which the Persians first came in sight of the Greek fleet, and the latter, we are assured, had taken up their position at Artemision with the full intention of fighting. On this day the diver Scilius of Scioni, deserting from the Persians, brought them tidings of the dispatch of the squadron to intercept them. Thus, within a few hours after the time when they first saw the enemy's ships, the Greek commanders learnt that the attempt to avoid a battle by retreating would be useless, and until they saw the Persian ships, it is distinctly implied that they had no intention of retreating. But along with these positive statements, we have a further circumstantial narrative, which states that the Greeks, on seeing the Persian ships, resolved to retreat as they had come, and to this retreat Themistocles would be a consenting party. End of section 18. Section 19 of Lives of Greek Statesmen by George William Cox. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Themistocles, Part 3. The tidings of the divers Gilius caused a change in the councils of the Greek leaders at Artemision. They resolved now to stay where they were until nightfall, and then, under cover of darkness, to move down the strait toward Euripus and meet the Persian squadron sent round the island to cut them off. But some hours yet remained of daylight, and as the Persian fleet made no movement, the Greeks resolved to attack them and to gain some experience as to their mode of fighting. To the Persians here as at Marathon, the Greeks as they advanced seemed mad, and as the overwhelming multitude of Persian vessels closed round them, the Ionians in the service of Xerxes are said to have pitied their western kinsfolk as victims already prepared for the slaughter. But on a given signal, the Confederate Greeks drew their ships into a circle with their prows facing outwards, and on a second signal they charged the enemy with their full force. Thirty Persian ships were captured, and during the fight a Lemnian vessel deserted to the Greeks, thus warning Xerxes of the slender trust to be placed in the most efficient of his seamen. The action was in no way decisive, but the powers of heaven were again to fight on behalf of the Athenians and their allies. The storm which had shattered so many Persian ships on the Magnesian coast was renewed with tremendous violence. It compelled the Greeks to remain where they were, but it wrought wild havoc on the Persian vessels which were working their way along the eastern coast of Euboea. The squadron was virtually destroyed, and thus we are told, the divine nemesis so far reduced the number of the Persian fleet as to give the Greeks some chance of final victory. In spite of this disaster, the Persian commanders seem to have been by no means dismayed, and when they found that the Athenian fleet had been strengthened by a reinforcement of fifty ships, which had captured a few Carian vessels, they were only the more determined to punish their presumption 
and to bring on the decisive battle which should show whether the greeks or the persians were to be the masters of the euripos by adopting the order of a crescent they thought that their own vast superiority of numbers would enable them easily to surround and overwhelm the confederate fleet but the very multitude of their ships is said to have been fatal to success although their crews did their best to achieve it the struggle was in truth a fierce one the loss of the persians was necessarily greater numerically but the greeks had been very severely handled and their strength seriously impaired the spartans were once more discouraged and depressed and their leaders resolved on immediate retreat themistocles strove in vain to shake their determination but nothing is said of any persuasion beyond that of words the twenty-two talents remaining after the bribes administered to eurybiades and adamantus were for all that we know to the contrary still in his possession why did he not make use of them and why should the argument of gold be less potent now than it had been only a few days before each step taken in retreat imperilled more and more the final success of his plans but in spite of this we hear not a word about the resources thus mysteriously left out of sight nay the eubians themselves although they were now under the necessity of leaving their island make no reference to the mighty sum of money which they had spent in vain the request which they now made to themistocles was that he would see them taken safely across the strait but while he assured them that they might rely on his doing this he also told them that it was better that they should eat their own cattle than that they should leave them to be eaten by their enemies the eubians had failed it seems to remove their herds although an old prophecy bearing the name of bacchus had warned them to do so when the barbarian placed a yoke upon the sea and they now found themselves driven to involuntary feasting in order that they might not leave materials for heavy banquets for the persian invaders whenever they might land but if any feeling of hesitation had lingered in the minds of the greek commanders it was finally extinguished when the tidings came that while they themselves had been fighting at artemision a still harder conflict had been going on in thermopylae that this conflict had ended in the death of leonidas and his spartan force and that xerxes was master of the pass which formed the gate of southern hellas just as the defile of tempe commanded the great thessalian plain that the persian king had achieved an all but decisive success is abundantly proved by the subsequent conduct of the confederated greeks the sequel of the narrative shows that the earlier portions have been moulded to suit the ethical and poetical feeling of the time each city or state has some particular conflict or battle in which it acquires a special prominence the athenians had all the glory of marathon the spartans must have all the glory of thermopylae hence in the struggle which goes on in that celebrated defile the athenians take no part although the maintenance of the pass was not only indispensable to their safety but required by the policy for which they had all along pleaded most eagerly 
the barbarian must not be suffered to ravage the lands of greek cities if it should be possible to prevent it yet here it would seem that they could not spare the smallest force for the defence of a post which ten men might hold against a thousand although they had been able to send a considerable army under themistocles to guard the pass of tempe but popular traditions even when they are most distorted generally leave some tokens which point to the real course of events and one such sign we have in the statement that the athenians still felt so far the importance of the stand made at thermopylae that they sent one of their citizens with charge to keep them informed at artemisian of any events with which it might be necessary to make them acquainted the grounds therefore are strong for thinking that the forces employed at thermopylae were larger and that the defeat was more serious than the traditional narratives would lead us to suppose the loss of three hundred spartans with their attendants would scarcely account for such extreme discouragement as that which is now betrayed by the confederate greeks at artemisian from this point the entreaties and arguments of themistocles fall on ears obstinately deaf two passes had already been abandoned and the next step would be to fall back upon and to defend the coast of attica and on this duty the athenians insisted very strongly but in vain the greek fleet forthwith began to retreat the corinthians leading the way and all that themistocles following with the athenians in the rear could do was to carve inscriptions which might do some mischief to the enemy these inscriptions cut on the rocks wherever streams of water fit for drinking found their way to the sea besought the ionians in the service of xerxes either to desert in a body or to remain neutral and to persuade the carians to do the same or if this should be impracticable to take the least possible share in any conflict such addresses as these if they came to the knowledge of xerxes must make him regard the ionians and carians that is his best seamen with the greatest suspicion even if they failed to bring about the systematic desertion which they professed to ask for but it is hard indeed to understand how he could at any time regard them with any other feelings his whole policy towards such subjects as the asiatic greeks is singularly puzzling when in his expedition to egypt cambyses wished to employ his phoenician mariners for the destruction of carthage he was met by a flat refusal it is strange therefore that xerxes could think it worth while to carry with him in his fleet or as land troops men who never could be expected to do much in such an enterprise and against whose probable treachery he must maintain a troublesome and costly watch the one thought of eurybides and adamantus now was to confine themselves to the defence of the peloponnesus only with a marvellous infatuation they had convinced themselves that no persian fleet would visit the shores of argolis and laconia and therefore that by land they would be safe if they adequately fortified the corinthian isthmus without making any use of their navy against this suicidal policy themistocles resolved to make a last desperate stand 
it was just possible that they might be induced to arrest their retreat at Salamis, if it were only to give the Athenians sufficient time to remove their households from Attica and otherwise to complete their plans. Thus far the entreaties of Themistocles prevailed, but no further, and here we have again to mark that no use whatever is made of that mysterious hoard of two-and-twenty talents in an emergency which made a judicious employment of money imperiously necessary. No hint is given that any bribes were offered, although their acceptance in one instance was a sufficient warrant for the belief that they would not be refused in another. At Salamis, therefore, the fleet remained, while the Spartans, with the whole available force of all their allies, worked by night and by day, breaking up the Skaranid road and building a wall from sea to sea across the Corinthian isthmus. Materials of all kinds, stones, brick, timber, and mats full of sand, were employed to raise this huge bulwark, which, when finished, imparted little confidence to those who had built it and who were to defend it, and still less to the men serving on board the fleet at Salamis. Depression, in fact, had passed with all into a feeling of dismay, which it is impossible to explain fully, except on the supposition that the traditional narratives are not entirely trustworthy as records of facts. Even according to these narratives, the enterprise of Xerxes had thus far been steadily successful. Storms had dashed many of his ships upon iron-bound coasts, and in actual battle his losses had exceeded numerically those of the Greeks. But they were not greater, perhaps, not nearly so great, in proportion to the mighty armaments at his disposal. Nor was the quality of his forces such as to justify their enemies in regarding them with contempt. The story of Thermopylae would by itself lead us to suspect that the army of Xerxes employed in that pass was not so large, or the force opposed to them not so small, as is commonly represented. And it is more than possible that the inaction ascribed repeatedly to the recurrence of religious festivals was virtually a plea put forth to cover the failure of serious efforts made to resist the enemy. The time of the greatest depression on the part of the Greeks is manifestly that at which the enterprise of Xerxes was brought most nearly to a successful issue. The former were all but overcome, and it was natural that the popular tradition of the time should represent them as overcome not by thousands but by myriads, while the ultimate failure of Xerxes was represented not less naturally as a defeat of millions by thousands. To us, on the other hand, it is clear that the glory of the Greeks is enormously enhanced if the power of Xerxes lay not so much in the numbers of his army generally as in the strength and spirit of his Persian soldiers, whose fathers had been led by Cyrus to victory after victory. The same combination of energy with bravery is displayed by their descendants still after the lapse of five and twenty centuries, and our appreciation of the nature and issue of the struggle must be both more sound and more just, when we see that Themistocles had to paralyze the resistance of men little, if at all, 
inferior to athenians or spartans except in the one point that the eastern arian fought to establish the rule of one despotic will while his western brother strove to set up and maintain the dominion of an equal and self-imposed law from this it would follow that the long and tedious stories which describe the progress of xerxes as that of a rolling snowball spring from the vulgar exaggerations of eastern nations and have been handed down to us by greek historians who adopted these exaggerations as heightening the lustre of their exploits immeasurably inferior to many of his own generals in all the qualities which form a great leader xerxes may have felt a stupid pride in dragging after himself a useless rabble of faint-hearted and ill-disposed subjects but all these in whatever countries they may have been gathered added nothing to his chances of success or to the dangers feared by his enemies the numbers of this rabble are as all admit largely exaggerated and we may fairly put them on one side in tracing the course of an enterprise which all but succeeded in riveting the chains of asiatic despotism upon europe the real peril to western freedom lay in the genuine persian element in the invading host and it was fully appreciated by themistocles if not by his countrymen generally he saw in fact that no effectual resistance could for the present be offered by land athens must be abandoned to the will of the enemy nor were there wanting portents and prodigies which gave weight to the lesson which he wished to enforce the priestess of athena announced that the sacred serpent of the acropolis which represented to them the line of their dragon kings had refused to take its food and themistocles readily accepted the sign as a plain sanction of his own measures hence immediately on the arrival of the fleet from artemisian he issued a proclamation announcing that the city and the rock which rose above it must be left to the protecting care of the virgin goddess and warning all athenians to remove their families from their country with all possible speed the work of removal in whatever measure it may have been carried out was accomplished in less than six days for within that time after the departure of the greek fleet from artemisian xerxes was master of athens that city was beyond doubt left desolate and its inhabitants as well as those of other places which lay in the immediate track of the invader fled some to troison where they were welcomed with a marvellous hospitality and others to salamis and aegina but that attica as a whole was carefully searched by the persians we can scarcely infer even from the fact that after the flight of xerxes the samians were said to have sent back five hundred athenians who had been carried away as prisoners on the other side we have to set the perplexing fact that having gained possession of athens the persians made no attempt to advance beyond it even as far as eleusis and that the persian cavalry never went beyond the thriacian or rarian plain if the report of these facts may be trusted there is no reason for supposing that the inhabitants of the more remote districts of attica abandoned their homes and their property 
thus far xerxes was fairly justified in the hope that he might establish his sway in the land through which he had advanced victoriously to the north of the borders of attica his authority was acknowledged by all the boeotian towns except thespiae and plataea the boeotian nobles were his vehement partisans and the Aloya chiefs of thessaly had welcomed him with enthusiasm but the character of the momentous drama was to be now changed and according to the ethical conception of the age the turning point was reached when at the boeotian town of panopei the army of xerxes was divided into two portions one of which pursued its course southwards while the other marched to delphi to plunder the temple of its wealth and especially to bring away the offerings dedicated there by the lydian king croesus the story of the vengeance taken by the delphian god of the appearance of the local heroes of the land and of the fall of the rocks which crushed multitudes of the invaders is singularly striking but how far the picture has been embellished by the imagination of a later age it is impossible to say if we are to believe the words put into the mouth of mardonius just before the battle of plataea the expedition to delphi never took place at all on this point mardonius is made to express himself with absolute assurance but the statement comes to us only in a speech and this speech is manifestly framed in accordance with the ethical sentiment that the gods had made the prime mover of the evil believe a lie and reached the utmost height of pride in the hour of his doom it was not the first time that the majesty of the gods had come between the spoiler and his prey the army of cambyses had been overwhelmed in the desert when it was marching to seek the shrine of the egyptian ammon and down almost to its minutest features we have the story of this delphian expedition repeated in the tradition of the gaulish attack on the same sanctuary just two centuries later here again we have the terror of the delphians the assurance of the god that he is able to guard his own the quaking of the earth the rending of the crags from the heights of parnassus the thunder and lightning and the reappearance of the heroes only that these are four instead of two in number the identity of these stories seems to enforce the conclusion that the idea of such divine interventions was older than the days of xerxes and that the myth embodying it was ready to fasten itself on any one who might presume to lay hands on the temples of the gods in the tradition as related by plutarch the delphian temple was not only taken but was plundered and burnt like the phocian oracle of abai this fact however is plainly inconsistent with the statement of herodotus that he himself had seen there the magnificent gifts of earlier ages which bore the names of gyges and croesus this statement gives a certain weight to the words of mardonius and the inference may be not unwarrantable that the story of the delphian expedition may be the popular version of a deliberate but unsuccessful effort on the part of a persian force to pass into southern hellas over the aetolian roads End of section 19section 20 of lives of greek statesmen by george william cox this librivox recording is in the public domain read by pamela nagami themistocles 
Part 4. The great crisis for which Themistocles had been preparing was now drawing nigh. The fleet of the Confederate Greeks was gathered at Salamis, and the country immediately in the path of the invaders had been left desolate. Four months had passed since Xerxes, with his army, crossed over the bridge on the Hellespont, when he set foot on Attic soil, and thus far he had no great reason to be dissatisfied with the results. He was now to encounter the tactics of a leader whose countrymen were not prepared to follow the example of Thessalians and Boeotians. He found the city without inhabitants, with the exception of a few poor people and the guardians of the temple, who remained on the Acropolis, a rock which rises abruptly to the height of about 150 feet above the surrounding plain, and has on its surface a tableland about 900 feet in length by 400 in breadth. Of this little hill, one side only was supposed to lie open to attack, and this portion the self-constituted garrison had blocked with wooden palisades, planks, or doors, as they came to hand, not so much from any serious notions of defence, as from the wish to carry out to the letter the second response of the Delphian oracle, which Themistocles had interpreted as pointing to the fleet. Behind this stockade, these poor defenders of an untenable position awaited the attack of the Persian troops stationed on the opposite hill of Ares, the Areopagus. Before this attack was made, the descendants of Pisistratus, who had followed in the train of the Persian king, made an attempt to bring about the surrender of the rock without fighting. Standing once again on the land which their fathers had ruled, they looked on themselves as practically repossessed of their old inheritance, and they would naturally have been glad to enter upon it unopposed. But their proposals were treated with contempt, and the attack which followed was for some time ineffectual. Arrows bearing lighted tow were discharged against the fence in vain, but access to the stronghold was discovered in another quarter. On the northern side of the rock, the chapel of Aglauras, the daughter of the dragon king Cecrops, stood at the summit of a fissure, which was in part subterraneous. Up this opening some Persians managed to scramble. On catching sight of them, the poor occupants of the rock threw themselves over the precipice or took refuge as suppliants in the temple of the virgin goddess. The latter obtained but a brief respite. The Persians, having opened the gates to their comrades, burst into the sanctuary and slew all whom they found within it. The plundering of the shrine was followed by the burning of the whole Acropolis. Xerxes was lord of Athens, and a message sent with all speed to Susa roused in the Persian capital a perfect paroxysm of joy and exultation. The same tidings borne to the confederates in the fleet at Salamis stirred up in them a fever of fear, which threatened to cast all authority to the winds. At no time, probably, had the commanders generally had any serious intention of occupying Salamis permanently as a naval station. If they could cover the migration of the Athenians, that was enough. Thus much they had done, and they now felt themselves justified in consulting their own safety by flight, without waiting for the formality of an order. 
the few who shrank from such barefaced desertion assembled in council but they met only to enforce the same plan a mere pretense at debate was followed by a resolution to retreat on the coming day and take up their position at the corinthian isthmus for themistocles such a decision as this was simply a presage of utter and irretrievable ruin with him the flimsy plea that at the isthmus they might fall back on the help of the land forces went for nothing the passes of tempe and thermopylae had been successively given up thessaly and boeotia had been abandoned to the partisans of the persian king the station at artemisian had been exchanged for that of salamis and finally attica had been left undefended what warrant was there for the supposition that a further retreat to the isthmus would be followed by greater harmony of counsels and steadier fixity of will rather what reasons were there for not concluding that any fresh advantage gained by the persians would tend to a general dispersion of the forces furnished by the several peloponnesian cities on the ground that they must defend their own homes if salamis were abandoned it would be a confession that joint action was no longer to be looked for and themistocles was resolved that this decision should not be acted upon if by any means at his command he should be enabled to prevent it for the incidents immediately following we can but give the traditional narrative as it has been handed down to us and notice the different versions when we have more than one account of the same events forming our own judgments on the story as a whole after the return of themistocles to his ship an athenian bearing the very significant name of nesiphilus one who reminds a friend besought him we are told to bring all his powers of persuasion to bear on eurybiades in order to get the resolution for retreat rescinded to nesiphilus it was clear that retreat meant virtual dispersion and dispersion meant the complete and final ruin of greece making no reply to his entreaties themistocles it is said hastened back to the ship of eurybiades and by many arguments of his own added to those suggested by nesiphilus prevailed on the spartan leader to summon a council for the reconsideration of the question no sooner had they met than themistocles disregarding the formalities with which a debate should be opened began an eager address which was interrupted by adamantus the corinthian chief reminded him that they who rise in the games before the giving of the signal were beaten yes answered themistocles but they who do not rise when the signal is given are not crowned turning to eurybiades he went on now in a different strain and dwelt no longer on the certainty that retreat to the isthmus would be followed by further dispersion but insisted only that in his hands and on his action depended the safety of hellas at the isthmus the conditions of the conflict would he assured them be wholly to the advantage of the enemy a conflict in the open sea would be full of danger to their own fewer and heavier ships and there too they would lack the help of the megarians salaminians and aeginetans who must remain to protect their own homes nor was it a matter of doubt 
that the advance of the persian fleet would be attended or followed by an advance of the persian army in strange contrast with the language of athenian commanders of a later day but with perfect truth according to the circumstances of his own time he added that a combat in the closed waters between Salamis and the Athenian coast would probably end in their winning their victory, and it was beyond dispute that a victory at Salamis would cover the Peloponnesus far more effectually than a victory gained at the Isthmus. At this point, the Corinthian Adamantus again broke in, it is said, upon his speech, telling him with savage bluntness that as since the fall of athens he had no country or city he was left without a vote in the council and that it was not in the power of eurybiades even to take his opinion much less to follow it to this brutal rudeness themistocles quietly opposed a plain denial of his facts so long as the athenians had two hundred ships which were able to bear down the resistance of any greek city whatever they might do against the persian power he had a better city than ademantus but a fleet has the advantage of being able to move from one place to another and for eurybiades this power furnished him with a final argument he warned the spartan that if the allies abandoned salamis the athenians would at once sail away with their families and find a new home in italy in their own city of cyrus eurybiades could not deny that without the help of the athenians it was impossible for the peloponnesians to offer any effectual resistance to the persians and he therefore issued an order for remaining the preparations for flight were exchanged for preparations for a battle but their formal obedience failed to raise their courage eurybiades must it seemed to them have lost his senses and when on the next day an earthquake was felt by sea and land their discontent broke out into open murmurs if not into formal mutiny against such opposition it was clear that eurybiades could not stand out long and themistocles saw that everything must be hazarded upon a final throw with the confederates there was manifestly nothing more to be done but it might be possible to shut them up in a trap by addressing himself to the persians without losing another moment he passed quietly from the council and dispatched sicanos the pedagogue or slave who took his children to and from school in a boat to the persian fleet the message which he carried to the persian leaders was to the effect that he really desired the victory not of the greeks but of the persians and that on this account he now without the knowledge of his colleagues took this means of letting them know that the confederates were on the point of running away and that in their present state of dismay and disunion they might be crushed almost without an effort it seems strange that the persians should have received without suspicion information coming from a man who had cut the inscriptions on the euboean rocks calling on the ionians to desert or to remain neutral in any battle in which they might have to take part in spite of this we are told that the persian leaders putting implicit faith in the message lost no time in landing a large force on the islet of Pisithileia, 
for the purpose of saving the wrecks of ships in the coming conflict and of slaying such of the enemy as might be driven upon the island towards midnight a portion of the persian fleet which lay off the open bay of phaleron began to move along the attic coast until the line extended to the northwestern promontory of salamis thus completely shutting in the greek fleet which lay between themselves and the northeasterly coast of salamis escape therefore into the bay of eleusis and a retreat to the isthmus were no longer possible for the greeks without fighting and it was with these tidings that aristides came to the confederate leaders who with one exception were still unconscious of this fact while they wrangled on in fierce and useless debate we have seen how this news received at first with suspicion was confirmed by a tenian vessel deserting from the persian fleet battle was now inevitable as themistocles had resolved that it should be and as the day dawned he addressed himself not to the chiefs but to the crews and putting before them all the motives for action lofty and generous ignoble and selfish with the entreaty that they should choose the higher he dismissed them to their work that this narrative contains a considerable amount of historical truth we may very safely maintain but we cannot fail to mark the contrast which it presents to the story which precedes it the necessity of winning over his colleagues to his own plans and policy was greater at salamis than it had been at artemisian if the means employed at artemisian were not of the most honourable sort there was not the least reason for greater scrupulousness at salamis but the whole history of the persian war shows that it was thrown into shape by men who were from their ethical convictions irresistibly tempted to put into the mouth of counsellors and advisers thoughts which must necessarily be awakened in the minds of kings and generals without their interference in this light nicephilus becomes altogether a superfluous personage it is hard to believe that the resolution of themistocles himself wavered that it was fixed by the remonstrance of a friend and that the failing firmness of the leader who had marked out his line of action and kept to it with inflexible pertinacity needed the support of one who suggests nothing with which themistocles had not all along been familiar and from whom themistocles hears only the arguments which he had just been himself urging in the council chamber nicephilus therefore appears simply as he has been called the inspiring genius of themistocles or rather we must say as his personified opinion his name as we have seen has no other meaning and of the man if he ever lived we have no knowledge whatever he appears here for the sole purpose of sending themistocles back to eurybiades we never hear of him again and to the one solitary speech which he addresses to the great athenian leader the latter vouchsafes no reply nicephilus is therefore the embodiment of one thought in the mind of themistocles and he is nothing more still more strange is the persistency with which in the discussions before the fight at salamis themistocles confines himself to merely verbal arguments scruples of conscience alone and these he is supposed not to have felt could have prevented him from resorting again to the bribery which he had effectually employed before 
if it was a matter of importance for him to do so off Eubea, it was of nothing less than a vital moment at Salamis. In this supreme difficulty, his ready wit devises a stratagem for compelling the action of the allies as soon as he finds that prayers, warnings, and entreaties are useless. But to our surprise we find that the device which he hits upon has nothing to do with bribery. He is still, for all that we are told to the contrary, in possession of two-and-twenty talents, the harvest of corruption, and his chief opponent is the Corinthian Arimantus, on whom three talents had exercised a potent influence at Artemisian. It was certainly a time which furnished a far greater excuse or even justification for employing the argument of gold, and this argument might have been tried probably with not less chance of success. So again in the story of Sycanus, the trick of Themistocles is successful, but it is not easy to reconcile the several accounts given to us. According to the contemporary poet Aeschylus, a Greek whom he does not name, and who therefore may have been Themistocles himself, goes not to the Persian generals but to Xerxes, and tells him that the Greeks are resolved on immediate flight. And Xerxes, on hearing this, charges his admirals, on penalty of losing their heads if they fail, to hem them in after nightfall with a triple line of ships, and so to catch them like vermin in a snare. Aeschylus, it is true, ascribes this order of Xerxes to ignorance of the trick which was being played upon him by the Greek, whoever he was, and to his unconsciousness that the gods were watching him with feelings of jealousy. But we have to remember that in no case could the device of Themistocles do more than hasten the course of events by a few hours. The strait between the northwestern promontory of Salamis and the opposite coast of Attica is only about half a mile in width, and Xerxes could scarcely need the advice of a Greek, or any advice at all, to guard an outlet which he could block so easily. He had come with the definite purpose of fighting, and whether he had received any message or not, the movement needed to prevent the escape of the enemy would have been carried out in a few hours but the delay of a few hours would have given the Peloponnesians time to effect their retreat to the Isthmus, and it was enough for the purpose of Themistocles if the movement could be just so far hastened as to render this retreat impossible. It is strange, however, that the orator Isocrates seems to know nothing of the stratagem of Themistocles, and we have seen that Herodotus was unaware that the sentence of banishment against Aristides had been revoked before he came to inform his rival that the Greeks must either fight where they were or surrender. From a great throne raised on the spurs of Mount Egalias, the Persian despot looked down on the Salamian waters to see how his slaves fought on his behalf. In the narrow strait before him, his Phoenician mariners stationed towards Eleusis in the west faced the ships of the Athenians, while the Ionians toward the east and the Persians confronted the Spartans and their allies. And so began this memorable conflict, of which beyond this general arrangement, the historian himself admits that we know practically nothing. The numbers of ships engaged on both sides are subjects of controversy, 
but the difficulty in ascertaining the precise numbers of the greek fleet is only such as we might fairly look for if as it would seem there was no strict registration on the persian side the problem assumes a different form for once at least oriental exaggeration has not been allowed to put out of sight an historical fact of no small interest and we are enabled to ascertain the number of greek vessels in the service of xerxes End of section twenty section twenty one of lives of greek statesmen by george william cox this librivox recording is in the public domain read by pamela nagami themistocles part five according to the tragic poet aeschylus who fought in the battle the whole fleet of the persian despot consisted of a thousand ships this round number denoting the boundlessness of his resources is what we should naturally look for but we should not look for the definite statement that the ships in his fleet noted for their swift sailing amounted to precisely two hundred and seven by whom were these ships furnished and why should we have such a total as this in lists which are made up of round numbers to these questions the drama of aeschylus furnishes no answer but from herodotus who does not sum up the total we learn that the asiatic ionians contributed one hundred ships to the persian navy the aeolians sixty the dorians thirty and the islanders seventeen and here we have precisely the two hundred and seven fast-sailing ships in the drama of aeschylus not only do the poet and the historian confirm each other but their statements bring out further the fact that not even phoenician shipbuilders could produce vessels with the sailing properties of the greek ships according to herodotus the issue of the fight of salamis was determined by the discipline and order of the greeks and by the confusion of their enemies who fell out of their ranks and did nothing wisely but if the popular story may be trusted some allowances must be made for the fact that the persian seamen had been working all night carrying out the movements for the complete surrounding and destruction of the whole greek fleet while the greeks went on board their ships in the morning of the fight fresh from sleep and animated by the stirring eloquence of themistocles but in spite of the general lack of information of which he complains herodotus notes first that the persians as a whole fought better at salamis than at artemisian perhaps as thinking that the eyes of the king watched each man personally and secondly that the ionians in his service did not follow the advice given to them by themistocles by means of the inscriptions cut on the euboean rocks according to his version they showed no small zeal in the conflict capturing many of the ships of the allied fleet if this fact be true it would seem to show that the desertion of the athenians and spartans in the revolt of aristagoras still rankled in their minds and blinded them to the shame of revenge taken under circumstances which threatened utter ruin to the western and eastern greeks alike but this tale is to say the least not beyond suspicion it is indeed contradicted by the tradition of the charge which in the thick of the fight 
the Phoenicians brought against these Asiatic Greeks. The accusation was that they had destroyed the Phoenician ships and betrayed the Phoenicians themselves. If this charge was really made, the general character of the Phoenician seamen would justify the suspicion that it was not altogether groundless. The issue of the battle was as decisive at Salamis as it had been at Marathon. The anticipations of Themistocles were amply realized. The Persian fleet was practically ruined, and the slaughter of their troops was frightful, while the loss of the Greeks is represented as insignificant. The conflict was to all intents and purposes ended before the massacre in the islet of Satalea. But in spite of the completeness of their victory, the Greeks still ascribed to the Persian king a power of resistance in which he himself had cast away all faith. They fully expected, we are told, that on the coming day they would have to fight another battle. But that very night the Persian fleet sailed from the scene of the great catastrophe to guard the bridge across the Hellespont for the passage of the king and his army. The discovery of its flight was followed by immediate pursuit, but the Greeks had sailed as far as Andros before they caught sight of the hindermost of the Persian ships. At Andros a council was held, in which Themistocles, it is said, insisted that they ought to sail at once to the Hellespont and break up the bridge. He was opposed by Eurybiades, who pointed out the folly of driving to bay a defeated enemy. Xerxes, he urged, was hurrying away from Europe, and out of Europe he could do them little harm. But if his retreat were cut off, he might turn with some faint trace of the spirit of Cyrus and take vengeance for his recent disasters, while his forces could be sustained with the yearly harvests of Hellas. If these last arguments were urged, they tell little for the sound sense or experience of the speaker. Nations suffering under permanent or yearly repeated invasions cease to till or sow their ground, and the resources of such a country as Greece would be ludicrously inadequate for the support of the Persian armies, whatever be the deductions made from the numbers given. Silenced, we are told, by this rejoinder, Themistocles contented himself with repeating to his countrymen the advice of Eurybiades, and begging them to turn their minds to the more pressing need of rebuilding their houses and sowing the seed for the next year's crops. But it is clear again that he could not at this time have urged this duty upon them. The Persian fleet was gone, but the Persian king, with all his army, was still in Attica, and betrayed as yet no intention of quitting it. Of Xerxes himself he probably spoke, as he is said to have spoken, as an impious man whose pride had wearied out the patience of the gods and provoked their wrath by profaning and burning their shrines. This feeling found its strongest expression in the synchronism, which assigned to the same days events which may have been separated from each other by short intervals of time. Thus the struggle was going on in the pass of Thermopylae, while the Greek fleet was fighting at Artemisian. Thus also at the moment when the Confederates were breaking the Persian power by sea at Salamis, 
the syracusan tyrant gelan was destroying the carthaginian army of hamilcar at the sicilian himera and thus also we shall see again that the catastrophe of mardonius at plataea happens on the very day on which the confederate greeks break in pieces the persian fleet at mycali we must not however forget that there was another version which made the battle of himera synchronize not with that of Salamis, but with the struggle in thermopylae the variation shows at least that we are walking on very loose ground having given the athenians this advice themistocles we are told sent sicanos on a second embassy but this time his message was addressed to xerxes not to his generals and it informed him that the greeks had wished to chase his fleet and destroy the bridge at the hellespont but that themistocles had turned them from their purpose and ensured to him if he wished to go home a peaceful and leisurely retreat the historian at this point so far anticipates the sequel of the life of themistocles as to say that both his counsel to his countrymen and his message to the persian king were prompted by a deliberate design of establishing a title to the favour of the latter if the need of so doing should at any time arise with this question we are not for the present concerned nor need we say anything about the glaring falsehood of the message themistocles is described as a man not troubled by many or serious scruples of conscience but even if we look upon him as one ready to lie whenever a lie seemed likely to be profitable we have yet to consider the effect which this second message if really sent was likely to have upon xerxes human nature is much the same in all ages and the child who has learnt to dread the fire by being burnt is sufficiently cautious in handling it even a stupid savage is not likely to be trapped twice in the same snare by the same man and for xerxes the fact stared him in the face that he had already acted upon one message from themistocles and that the result had been the ruin of his fleet what else could he possibly suppose than that this second message was sent to ensure his own destruction and that of his land army we have not the smallest reason for thinking that this message would have had the effect even of hastening his flight the bitter experience of Salamis could only lead him to interpret the words of themistocles by contraries and convince him that if he acted upon them it would be simply to find out when he reached the hellespont that the means for crossing it were not forthcoming that the strait was filled with the enemy's ships and that no time had been allowed for making any preparations to shelter and guard his army in a hostile country it cannot be said that he had had time to forget the disaster to his fleet it had happened only a few hours ago and in a mind like his the memory of this deadly wrong would be fixed with a strength which no lapse of time could weaken but the message is in truth as superfluous as the advice of nicephilus the tyrant as it so happens had resolved to remain no longer in europe but this fact was not yet known to themistocles nor could the idea of cutting off his retreat at the hellespont have even crossed his mind 
so long as the Persian host lay encamped on Greek soil. And even after he had ascertained that Xerxes had with a chosen bodyguard already taken the road which was to lead him back to Asia, no such plan could have appeared to him practicable. He would know that the departure of the king with a useless train of non-combatants increased, instead of lessening, the perils of the confederate Greeks. He would soon learn that the throng which had retreated with the king was a rabble which had been to his generals only a hindrance and a clog, and he would feel no temptation to underrate the strength and bravery of the genuine Persian warriors. The tidings that the king had departed would be soon followed by the startling news that Mardonius remained in Boeotia, and that he remained with a picked army, whose chief danger lay in the fact that it was still far too large. In short, Themistocles would know that Xerxes, in leaving with Mardonius his native Persian troops, was leaving behind him the hardy soldiers on whom the very foundations of his empire rested, and that his true policy was not to cut off their retreat, as in the council at Andros he is said to have advised, or to send to Xerxes a second message, which he would not fail to interpret by contraries. But while Themistocles is described as unscrupulous, he is nowhere represented as short-sighted or foolish. The conduct ascribed to him after the flight of the Persian ships is marked by extreme confidence and extreme rashness. The dark cloud of invasion which had long brooded over Hellas was not dispersed, nor was even its gloom abated, so long as Mardonius remained to carry on the work. To leave the latter unmolested for the sake of making an attempt to intercept a terror-stricken fugitive would be an act of sheer madness, and as no such charge has been urged against Themistocles, it follows that no such plan was proposed by him, and therefore that it could not be rejected by Eurybiades. Nor are we on entirely sure ground when we turn to the operations of the Greek fleet after the Battle of Salamis. These operations show clearly that the aim of the Greek commanders was not to encounter useless risks by attempts to cut off the retreat of Xerxes at the Hellespont, but to provide for the costs of the war by the forced or voluntary contributions of Hellenic cities. The assessments made may have been unjust or excessive, but in levying them, the Athenians and Spartans were beyond doubt engaged in a joint work for a recognized purpose. But the narrative of incidents is not unlike the story of Miltiades after the Battle of Marathon. As Miltiades fails at Paros, so Themistocles fails at Andros. The difference between them is that Miltiades chose to wrap his enterprise in mystery and so took the whole responsibility on himself personally, while Themistocles acted as spokesman for the allies in general. As such, he told the Andrians that the allies that come to their island, under the guidance of two very mighty deities, necessity and faith, the latter word meaning here the power which produces obedience. They must therefore pay the sums demanded of them. On their part, the Andrians urged 
that they likewise had two deities, poverty and helplessness, which would never leave them, and whose troublesome presence made it impossible for them to pay anything. This refusal was followed by a blockade, which it is said verified the assertion of the Andrians that the power of the Athenians could not exceed their own impotence, but which rather proved that in the art of siege the skill of the Athenians was still poor. Foiled in the blockade, the Greeks betook themselves to Euboea, where they ravaged the land of Charistas at the southern extremity of that island, and then sailed back to Salamis. If these last facts be historical, they refute the story that Themistocles had already extorted large sums from the Charistians and Parians, under the pledge, we must assume, that these payments should save them from further exactions. We are, however, also told that while the siege of Andras was still going on, Themistocles, by threatening the other islands with summary measures in case of refusal, extorted large sums of money without the knowledge of his colleagues, and kept them all for himself. The charge is altogether beyond belief. Themistocles and the agents of his extortions might keep their secret, but there was nothing to stop the mouths of his victims, and Athens was not so popular as to make her allies deaf to charges which accused Themistocles of crippling their resources for his own private advantage. If this systematic robbery had been an historical fact, Sparta and Corinth at least would have rung with cries of indignation, not so much at the wrong done to the islanders as to the spoliation of the confederates in whose name he had cheated them. The worthlessness of the charge may be inferred from the candid admission of Herodotus that with the exception of Paros and Charistas, he could not assert that any other city paid anything, although he thinks that some may have done so. We have therefore thus far nothing to show that Themistocles had added to that mysterious horde of two-and-twenty talents, of which he had failed to make use in more than one supreme crisis. One other question, we are told, was decided at the Corinthian Isthmus before the close of this memorable year and this was the question of personal merit in the war. By their written votes, each of the generals is said to have claimed the first place for himself, while most of them, according to Plutarch, all, assigned the second to Themistocles. The superiority of Themistocles was amply vindicated, but the incredibly silly vanity which, if the tale be true, thus deprived him of his formal preeminence, in no way impaired his glory or interfered with the honors paid to him. As commander-in-chief, Eurybiades received an olive crown, but the same prize was bestowed on Themistocles also on the expressed ground of his unparalleled wisdom and dexterity. A beautiful chariot, the gift of the citizens, conveyed him from the city of Sparta, three hundred chosen Spartiati escorting him to the boundaries of Tegea. No other stranger, it is said, ever received such honors from the cold and austere chiefs of the Dorian race of Greeks. End of section 21
Section 22 of Lives of Greek Statesmen by George William Cox. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Themistocles, Part 6. With this triumphant progress from Sparta, the figure of Themistocles passes under a cloud. Nor does the mist which veils him from our eyes disperse until the Athenians, having conveyed their households back from Salamis, were ready to begin the work of restoring their ruined city and of cultivating their wasted lands. But as soon as the way is opened for the accomplishment of his life's task, we see him adapting means to ends with all his old sagacity and firmness. In the momentous struggle which, so far as Western or European Greece was concerned, had been brought to an end, the Spartans may not have played a part so poor and shabby as that which Athenian tradition ascribed to them. But the old vices of tribal disunion and jealousy had never been more than veiled, and they now displayed in larger measure their powers of mischief. The historian Thucydides represents the Corinthians, nearly half a century later, as expressing their conviction that the Persian invaders had made shipwreck by their lack of order and military discipline, and that thus the catastrophe in which their enterprise ended was mainly of their own causing. But it may be doubted whether either the Corinthians or the Spartans, who saw and took part in the great conflict, were far-seeing enough to measure the risk which they would have run, if with a better military system the Persians had been animated by the Western spirit of a voluntary obedience to law. The danger of Persian conquest in Europe was now practically at an end. But the Spartans still spoke and acted as though the chances of Persian aggression should determine the relation of the Peloponnesian cities with those which lay beyond the Isthmus. Sparta had no walls, and a wall of sufficient strength across the isthmus would guard all the cities within the peninsula. The fortifications of Thebes had greatly furthered the cause of the barbarians. Therefore, to prevent a recurrence of the same mischief, no extra Peloponnesian city ought to have walls. Hence, when they heard of preparations for rebuilding the walls of Athens, they hurried to the conclusion that a people who had submitted to so many losses in the common cause would be easily induced to forego what the Spartans affected to regard as a luxury for thieves and marauders, rather than as a necessity for honest freemen. Such notions as these went for nothing with Themistocles. He had made up his mind that Athens must be great, and he knew that she could not be great unless she were wealthy. For various reasons, Athens had long ago attracted to itself a large proportion of foreigners, whose capital and skilled workmanship had done much towards enriching the country. This population had been scattered by the storm of Persian invasion, and if Athens was to rise from her fallen condition, it was of the utmost importance that these metoikoi, or resident foreigners, should be induced to return. The temporary remission of the metoikion or tax imposed on such foreign residents 
might do something towards the attainment of this end but it would not go far so long as security for property was wanting and under all conditions of life then known it was absurd to look for such security in an unwalled town hence for the sake of her trade and commerce as well as of her navy athens must not only be fortified but must have an impregnable harbour and themistocles set himself to supply both these wants with the quiet resolution which in most cases carries a man over all obstacles to the request of the spartans that the athenians should not only not rebuild their own walls but join them in pulling down the walls of all other cities to the north of the corinthian isthmus he returned no answer but he advised his countrymen to dismiss the spartan envoys with the promise that they would send their own ambassadors to sparta to discuss the matter at his own wish themistocles was entrusted with this mission his colleagues being Opernicus and his former rival and opponent aristides four seventy nine b c as he set out on his errand he charged the athenians to strain every nerve in the indispensable work before them and not to send his colleagues until the walls had reached a height which could enable them to bid defiance to all attacks young and old women and children must give their help to the utmost of their power nor must anything be spared to supply the necessary material without walls the gods would have neither worshippers nor offerings for their temples therefore they must not grudge the stones of their temples for the achievement of this task the walls must in short rise as if by the speed of magic and to ensure this end everything else must be thrown down meanwhile during the progress of this work at athens themistocles had to deal at sparta with a delicate problem which called for the exercise of all his inborn dexterity declining all official audiences he expressed himself in private as expecting the early arrival of his colleagues the kindly feeling still entertained by the spartans for the victor of salamis won a ready acceptance for this excuse but it underwent a severe strain when tidings came in all likelihood from the aegenetans that the walls of athens had been already raised to a considerable height themistocles denied the statement but told them that if they doubted his words they had better send their own envoys to ascertain the exact state of things before these envoys could reach athens themistocles had charged the athenians to detain them until he himself with his colleagues who had now joined him should have returned home having learnt that these spartan ambassadors were in safe keeping as hostages for his own safety and that of abernicus and aristides he came forward boldly and made to the spartan ephors a full confession of his motives and his plans athens he told them was now protected by walls high enough to justify her citizens in undergoing a blockade without fear and his city had a perfect right to this protection unless the right was to be denied to every other greek city be it in the peloponnesus or beyond its limits freedom of speech and independence of action would alike be impossible 
if any one member of the confederacy stood at an advantage over the rest and if for a time athens had been left without walls it was only because she had chosen to suffer all that could befall her rather than be faithless to the common cause athens moreover he argued had done nothing to forfeit her independence and as the allies if thwarted by athens would assuredly claim for themselves perfect freedom of counsel and action they must extend the same privilege to her themistocles had in short done what he wanted to do if the spartans had sought to hoodwink the athenians they had been fairly caught in their own trap they had professed to offer nothing more than friendly advice and they could not with reason or indecency express anger because this advice was not followed the ambassadors on each side returned to their several homes without a formal recall but the spartans secretly fostered the resentment to which they could not give open expression on his return to athens themistocles found the whole city walled in not indeed to the height which he had desired but the half of what he had hoped for had been accomplished and the main work of his life was done such is the narrative in which thucydides traces the course of these events it is a perfectly coherent and consistent tale in which we find not a hint of bribery or corruption but there was another probably a more modern version of the story which represented themistocles as bribing the spartan ephors into connivance with his plans the absurdity of the supposition may enable us to estimate the value of these charges of corruption in those instances in which they are urged with greater plausibility the ephors would in all likelihood belong to those spartan families whose jealousy and dislike of athens would be most obstinate and it is not easy to think that a whole board of magistrates would be open to bribery no such charge was ever brought against the whole body of athenian archons but in the conflict with xerxes athens had been saved not by any defences of stone but by the wooden walls of her ships and themistocles to whom pre-eminently they were indebted for this safety now insisted that nothing must be left undone to make her navy irresistible for the athens which lay more than four miles from the nearest point on the sea-coast he manifestly cared but little and there can be no doubt that he would have preferred to abandon it altogether twice within a single year its inhabitants had been compelled to leave their homes and seek refuge elsewhere such forced migrations must be fatal to the steady growth of the city and country in wealth and prosperity but the athenians would always be liable to the recurrence of the calamity so long as they remained in a spot where they could not at once fall back upon their fleet the most effectual way of ensuring this condition would be to abandon the old city with all its sacred and time-honoured associations but it was just these associations which rendered the acceptance of any such suggestion hopeless some other method must be devised for attaining the end which he had most at heart if athens could not be brought to the sea the sea must be practically brought to athens and this could be done by making the ancient city one with the new city which would he foresaw 
rise on the shores of the great harbour of Piraeus. For this purpose he regarded the open bay of Phaleron as worthless. But Piraeus had with Munichia three havens, and all these were now by his advice enclosed within a wall nearly seven miles in circuit. This wall was to be made so nearly impregnable that old men and children might serve to guard it, even in time of war. And in the vast enclosed space, the Athenians might leave their families in perfect safety, instead of seeking, as they had lately sought, a precarious and uncertain refuge elsewhere. The wall was raised only to half the intended height, but even thus it amply sufficed for its purpose. Its width, we are told, was such that two carts could cross each other, depositing stones on the outer side of each, leaving between the two walls thus raised a space which was filled up with large squared stones clamped together with lead and iron. The ruins of this mighty rampart still bear out the accuracy of the historian's description. As before the Persian invasion, so now the two foremost men in Athens were Themistocles and Aristides. But their relative positions had greatly changed. The latter, as we have seen, had learnt the lessons enforced by the altered conditions of the age, and he had proposed and carried reforms from which the Eupatrids of the days of Solon would have shrunk with horror. But how far the reputation which Aristides enjoyed among his friends reflected the opinion of the people generally, we have no means of determining. The question is not whether he was highly esteemed by a considerable body among the Athenians, but whether he was equally valued by all. The same questions must be put with reference to Themistocles, and if the answer be that in each case there were some who suspected, feared, or hated them, then we have to ascertain, if it be possible, who these persons were, and what may have been their motives. Now if the universal popularity of Aristides seems to be implied, it is nowhere distinctly stated, in the stories told of the later years of Themistocles, it is altogether inconsistent with the words in which Diodorus speaks of the singular love felt for the latter by the main body of the citizens. It is true that Diodorus says in the same passage that partly through fear and partly from envy the Athenians forgot the good services and eagerly sought the humiliation of the conqueror of Salamis. But as it is certain that some Athenians retained their love for him to the end, we have to determine whether the successive sentences of Diodorus apply to the same or to different bodies or parties among the Athenian citizens. It is not only possible but likely that this fear and jealousy may have been felt not by the people at large, but by a faction which set itself first to humiliate him and then to blacken his memory. This is a question of supreme importance for those who have at heart the cause of historical truth, and any evidence which throws light upon it must be carefully and dispassionately weighed. The controversies and feuds of early Roman history point to a condition of things in many points resembling that of Attica before the days of Solon. 
in rome as at athens there was a patrician or eupatrid order which regarded the admission of plebeians to any share in the work of government as a profanation and an impiety and in both states there were a few men of this exalted order who saw that their ascendancy could not be maintained permanently if they stood absolutely still and refused altogether to move with the times in both cities these reformers incurred the hatred of all whose minds were fixed on the one purpose of handing down their privileges unimpaired in both the latter were necessarily from their wealth their education and their power able to shape and colour the historical traditions of their age far more effectually than the struggling commonalty on whom they looked down as rabble in rome more than in athens the historians such as they were were partisans of the eupatrid or patrician order and accepted without question the verdict of that order in the cases of men like spurius cassius and spurius milius of these two men the former was a patrician the latter a plebeian milius was murdered and his birth did not save cassius from the same fate the case of milius is a singularly black one and it has been well said that the whole evidence even as handed down by patrician chroniclers leads us irresistibly to look upon the murdered plebeian as the victim of a party which with a haughty contempt of justice made use of any weapon however dishonourable in a base endeavour to evade or violate the law a party which was not ashamed to extol bloody crimes committed in its interest and to stigmatize its murdered enemies in their graves as traitors or common criminals it is impossible to put out of sight these points of likeness between roman traditions and those which profess to lay before us the career of themistocles the tale must however be told as it has been handed down to us by those who had the putting together of records the chronology of which is by no means clear at sparta themistocles after the battle of salamis was welcomed and dismissed with such honours as in that city we are told no other stranger ever received but we have seen that the determination with which he insisted on the right of his countrymen to fortify their city and manage their own affairs soon turned their admiration into dislike and even hatred nor was their diligence in spying out the weak points of his conduct surpassed by that of some who were watching him in athens these men seem to have spent their time in bringing forward against him a series of charges some of them ridiculous some insignificant one or two accusing him of very serious crimes among the earliest was the statement that he had dedicated near his own house a chapel to artemis aristobule the goddess of good counsel a deity for whose gifts they would rather have done well to become suppliants themselves he was then charged with speaking much of the good services which he had rendered to athens but lack of good taste may have been a fault not confined to themistocles only he was stigmatized as a lying and corrupt traitor by the rhodian poet timocrian but such indictments were not likely to carry much weight 
the case became more serious when he was pointed out by the spartans as an accomplice in the treachery of pisanius the peloponnesian leader at the battle of plataea but if we may believe diodorus and here he could scarcely err from dullness or stupidity the spartans acted from a mere feeling of resentment or jealousy the conduct of pausanias had reflected deep disgrace on the city which he had represented at byzantion while no athenian general had been tried or condemned for either medism or more downright treason they were resolved therefore that the balance should be redressed and that the charge of treachery should be retorted on themistocles as a man who had attained a dangerous preeminence diodorus adds that the spartans bribed his enemies at athens to support this accusation themistocles it would seem was formally arraigned and triumphantly acquitted for the present he was more popular than ever nor can it be said that his popularity was short-lived nine years had passed away from the time of his victory at salamis and he was still living at athens admired and loved or feared and hated when his opponents proposed to apply the remedy of ostracism an adverse vote involved his exile 471 b c but as we have seen this fact proves nothing more than that six thousand citizens wished to be rid of his presence it does not prove that there were not four and twenty thousand more who deplored his banishment End of section twenty two